Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to LSE for this wonderful hybrid event. My name is Mael Lavner. I am a doctor of history and I am a research fellow in racial inequality at the LSE International Inequalities Institute, working in the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Programme. I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Professor Kehendi Andrews and Dr. Sarah Camacho Felix to both our online audience and our audience here at the Sheikh Syed Theatre this evening. Kehendi Andrews is the UK's first professor of black studies at Birmingham City University, where he led the establishment of the first black studies program in Europe. He is the chair of the Harambe Organization of Black Unity and he is editor in chief of Make It Plain. Sarah Camacho Felix is an assistant professor in education and program lead for the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program. In this event, our speakers will be discussing the new book by Kehendi Andrews titled The Psychosis of Whiteness, Surviving the Insanity of a Racist World, which is amazing in my opinion. Thank you. For Twitter users, the hashtag this evening is hashtag LSEIII. This event is being recorded and will be hopefully made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. <laughs> yeah. As usual, there will be the chance, the chance for you to put your questions to our speakers. Please do let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni, so please do let us know. Um, for our online audience, you can submit your questions via the Q&A feature um, at the bottom of your screen. For those of you here in the theater, I will let you know when we will open the floors for questions. Please raise your hand and then when I indicate you can pose your question. I will try to ensure a range of questions from both our attendees here and our attendees online. And at the end of the event, you will have an opportunity to purchase copies of Kehendi's book outside the lecture theater. And Kehendi will also sign any copies purchased. But now, I am delighted to hand over to Kehendi Andrews. Thank you. Good evening. Should we try again? Good evening. Good evening. There we go. That's good. Sorry. Um, my train was delayed, as all trains now appear to be delayed, <laughs> which I guess is a, a commentary on the government and privatization, of which didn't actually feature in the psychosis of whiteness, uh, but certainly could have done. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, first I just wanted to say thank you for coming. Thank you for being online. Uh, thank you for the invitation as well. Hopefully it will be an interesting discussion. I always try and work out what to say based on the audience, and I guess university audience, um, there's particularly interesting things I'm going to try and pick up. And one of those actually is comes from, there's been quite a lot of backlash about the book, so Psychosis of Whiteness. To be honest, you know, I'm, I'm not a, um, when I went on, the first time I went on television, uh, I was on Politics Live talking about the book, and there was a GB News pundit next to me. <laughs> 
black, a black GB News pundit next to me, which, to be honest, this is a feature. It's something that's changed. So a few years ago, it would usually be a mediocre white person sitting next to me having a discussion about race. But now it's always, always a black or brown person. Always. Like, it's something has definitely shifted. And you can see it in the, in the government as well. Um, and just a, a betting tip for you, go put some money on the first black British prime minister will be Kemi Badenoch. And we'll all be really excited about that prospect. Anyway, so actually, Kemi Badenoch does come up in the book. She, she does feature a couple of times. Um, yeah, a couple of times in the book. Uh, and also this idea about diversity and where, where are we headed, which I think is actually really important thinking about universities because universities are in a moment of diversity, right? The idea of decolonizing the university, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which again, didn't, didn't turn up in the book, but certainly could have. I guess there's a lot. So actually, psychosis, there's so many things you could say which are a good example. And actually, a lot of the decolonizing talk is one of them. But the thing I wanted to, to, to talk about a little bit was one of the, well, two of the backlashes. So one of the backlash um, about the title, which I'm going to get to in a second. But the other one, uh, I was just featured in Telegraph. I want to say Telegraph. 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 Torygraph. Telegraph is, 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 is um, what did somebody call it? They called it fascism light or something like that, which I thought was, I thought was great. Um, because I'm doing a talk at um, Deloitte next week. And someone, you know, the most embarrassing thing was people now know that I do talks at Deloitte. That was actually, <laughs> I might have to cancel there, so that, 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 that for that reason. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do a talk at Deloitte, and some of the people at Deloitte weren't very happy. I'm an anti-white race activist, which I thought is a, is a new title, and, and, and I can put that, put that on my bio, certainly. No one ever calls me a hate teacher. Hate teacher is so easy. Like, it seems so easy. Like, no one ever says it. But anyway, so, but the reason I'm bringing, why am I even talking about this? The reason I'm bringing this up is because when, when part of this backlash is, well, as a professor, you're not a real professor. What, what does that mean? Although my 10-year-old son does say that I am professor of fake studies, uh, so, so, a way to stay humble, have children. They will, they will definitely, keep, definitely keep you grounded. Um, and then there was another piece. There's a group called Don't Divide Us. I don't know if you've ever come across Don't Divide Us, the most divisive group I've ever come across. It's really odd, really oddly named. But Don't Divide Us um, picked up some old thing I was part of. When BBC did a thing about um, for Newsround about white privilege, and they say, look, this is terrible. How can they, how can they ask this anti-white professor? He's not even, he's not a neutral professor. This is what I wanted to, to come to. This idea that there is a such thing as a neutral professor is deeply part of the psychosis of whiteness, right? I mean, we're in these institutions, and part of, you know, I, I only really go by professor for economic purposes, um, in many ways. Uh, professor, I don't, I feel for me, professor and chief constable, have, there's no real difference. Uh, they're, they're both deeply problematic titles and deeply problematic roles. And so much of the myth about society and the myths that we tell ourselves are that Western knowledge, Western science, it's objective, it's rational, it's, it's leading us to truth. It's complete nonsense. I mean, honest, honestly, honestly, then actually the last book, not this book, uh, The New Age of Empire, I talked extensively about the Enlightenment. Um, and the Enlightenment is, is, is one of the, not one of the, it's the most racist intellectual project that's ever existed. All of the Enlightenment thinkers believe that I'm not a human being. Every single one. The same Enlightenment thinkers we still teach in places like this and places where I work. Right? And this, this, this idea you can separate out the, the white supremacy of the people from their theory, I mean, how would that be possible? Um, my fav, fav, favorite is probably the wrong word. My uh, least favorite? Favorite? I don't know. The anti hero of the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, um, 
is actually spends half a good chunk of his writing is what he calls moral geography, where he's, he's planning out the world and saying that white people are the best, black people are the worst, uh, we're inferior. Actually, has a bit where he says advises the slave owners on how best to beat a Negro because in his racial theory, our skin is thicker and so a whip isn't the best way. You should use a split bamboo cane. This is the same Emmanuel Kant that you want to have as the, the father of human rights. I mean, if that's not a delusion, I don't know what is, right? So the idea that this knowledge is, is, is there is any such thing as a neutral professor, that you want to throw away immediately. All knowledge is produced from political perspective. I just tell you what my political perspective is. You can take it, take it or leave it. It's a radical perspective. And that is actually the, the perspective that really frames the book. Because I really want to stress from the beginning that psychosis, in this uh, Telegraph piece, they quoted somebody saying that, I said that all white people are mentally ill by nature. <laughs> Would be quite a claim, which I certainly do not make in, in the book at all. Um, because actually, the danger of using a term like psychosis is that you start to think it's an individual malady, an individual problem. And I'm really, I, honestly, this is not the point of the book. The point of the book is to say psychosis is when we think about whiteness, not white people. Whiteness is a set of ideas, the set of ideas that we understand the world through. Those ideas, primarily enlightenment ideas, et cetera, et cetera. It's, a, it's that whiteness is a set of ideas, discourse, et cetera. And that is a psychosis, not people. It's not about individuals at all. Although individuals, you can pick on particular individuals as great examples of a psychosis, but it's not actually an individual thing. And also to stress, as I mentioned, uh, Kemi Badenoch, Calvin Robinson, half the examples in the book are probably black and brown people. I would really, really stress from the beginning, psychosis of whiteness is not about white skin. It's not about white people. It's about whiteness. And unfortunately, many of us have, have, have and continue to delude ourselves into believing the myths of whiteness. Because the argument, effectively, that I'm making here is that psychosis is necessary um, in people. It's, 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 a, it's a, something that happens to convince you that you are OK when you're not OK. Right? So you have a mental illness, you think, and you, 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 you think you're fine, but actually you're not. And you think you're fine because you're having hallucinations and you're drawing on distorted view of reality, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's the metaphor to use about whiteness. The, the ideas in which we are given to think about the world, we think that we're making progress. I mean, even the name, the Enlightenment, right? We're making progress, we're going somewhere, we're getting... I've, how many books have you read that's come out recently, or the last 10 years, that say we're, it's never been better, right? We're in the best place ever, everything's getting better and better and better. For example, I've heard so many arguments that Africa's future is bright, right? And I don't want to play down Africa at all, like I'm a pan-Africanist, I said, look, we need to have African unity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you actually look at the reasons that are given, they're actually terrible, right? So one of the reasons is Africa is a young continent. Well, Africa's a young continent because people die early, right? That's why Africa still is, that's why the, the population is younger, because there's, you will not find that many people over 60 which is actually about death. The life expectancy in Nigeria is 54. And that's about a fifth of the population of the continent. Uh, and we're supposed to celebrate Africa as a young continent. And there's not, nothing to celebrate. Even with COVID, everybody's surprised that COVID didn't devastate Africa. Well, there's not that many old people. It's not really that complicated. If you have a continent that's not that many old people, it's probably not gonna have that much of an impact. But we celebrate these things as always say positive. The other thing with Africa would be its um, population. So population explosion, over the next 50 years, the only part of the world that's supposed to have more people is the African continent, which will have about three, the estimates are about 3 billion people by 20, 2100, right? 
Um, and this could be a good thing, but considering, like I said, 54 is the life expectancy of Nigeria, um, large scale poverty, the continent, if we're being honest about it, cannot sustain its 1 billion people today. So if you don't change something dramatically in the, in the economy, 3 billion people is a dystopia on the African continent. That's the reality. Like, but we're looking and saying, well, look, there's more people, it's great. Not, not necessarily, right? Particularly if you don't address economic inequality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But these are the myths that we tell ourselves. And in the book, I try to go through, unpick some of these myths, ideas, because they're completely and utterly irrational. And what I'm really trying to say to people is that we have to take a different approach, right? So the book is really the book. So if you actually get to the end of the book, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the common theme, you get to the end of the book and you're like, well, what do we do now? I'm, I, I don't know what to do. The book has no solutions. I promise you the book has no solutions. This is not a solution book. This is very much uh, a three-part, right? It's a trilogy. So Back to Black, which I wrote in 20, came out in 2018, that's the solution book. That's Black Revolution, we should do this, we should do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I wrote that book and went around, talked to lots of people, and it was very obvious that people needed to understand the scale of the problem before the solution, which is why the New Age of Empire, I tried to give the, it's the political, it's the economic, it's the, it's the, it's the let's look at the evidence of this. Um, and actually, I think there's a publisher here, Maria might be here. Um, yeah, you did ask me at the end of the book, said, uh, can you make it more positive? Uh, and I was like, uh, <laughs> not really, <laughs> it's really bad. But, but, so that book was kind of, this is the problem. And then even talking around that and then being on TV and seeing things and just, just, just having these conversations, it was really clear that we still weren't grasping the issue, right? The whiteness is, whiteness, this set of ideas is so deeply irrational that there really is no way that you should be engaging with it. I'm essentially arguing that we've just been doing the wrong thing. The liberal account is that we should, you know, you can engage through reason, through debate, through evidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've been on the right side of the argument for 500 years. It has got us precisely nowhere, right? And so what I'm really saying in the book, and the whole point of it is to say, that doesn't work. You have to, whiteness is produced by white supremacy. White supremacy is a political and economic system. And if you want to get rid of whiteness, the only way to get rid of whiteness is to get rid of white supremacy. That is to create a political and economic alternative. Basically, it's a book saying you need to have revolution. And that's it, there's no, there's no way around it. So the whole book, that, that's the whole purpose of the book, to get us to think, to unpick, to, to, to think with different, different eyes, right? So, yeah, if you're looking for solutions, that is a, I guess that is a solution, right? Think, <laughs> rethink, reorder, and yeah, I tried to, I did try, I really tried to make the book a bit positive at the end, I did, I did, I did make it a bit. Um, but I think also one of, the, one, of the, one of the motivations for the book was, there are now, actually started pre-George Floyd, but post-George Floyd, there's, there's a lot of this, is there's so many books that try to make you feel comfortable about race. I really are, and I, I, I listened to a lot of these books. Uh, my wife, who passed away last year, was, was around when I was listening to these books. She was more appalled than I was. To be honest, like she's like, why are you listening to this book? Like, well, what, what's wrong with you? Uh, and I'm like, well, you know, I've got it. It's interesting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I will name one of the books just because it's so appalling. Have you read the book um, Me and White Supremacy? Me and White Supremacy. Anybody? There's a couple of nods. That's good. Don't read it. It's fine. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be better off. <laughs> but Me and White Supremacy is a, a book uh, by Leila Saad, and it is um, essentially you journal your way through white supremacy. It's based on an Instagram challenge which had. Different, day, different weeks of journaling your way through white supremacy. And look, this is not against journaling. I suggest you do journal, but journaling has nothing to do with white supremacy. White supremacy is a political and economic system. You cannot journal your way out of white supremacy. It's not, it's, 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 
it, honestly, it's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. This is horrendous. And I didn't, to be honest, to be fair, I didn't, I didn't do the journal. I was listening to it. So it's possible I missed out on the book's healing power. That is, <laughs> so maybe I missed something. But the idea that this is a way to address white supremacy, I, I, I honestly can think of nothing, nothing, nothing worse. In fact, Afi Wurst criticized me in The Guardian for being too mean when I said that I would prefer you to burn a cross on my lawn than to read that book. <laughs> but, I wasn't joking. I actually would prefer you to burn a cross on my lawn and read that book. It's awful. Like, what, what, at least you're being honest. At least, at least, at least I, I, I know where I stand with that one. But the idea that you can journey away. So this is, this is again, this is, this is one of the motivations uh, for the book. Because so many of these books, and this is essentially what happens when you do mainstream stuff and you want to reach white audiences and it has to be palatable. But this is the, honestly, um, there's, it's, what, one thing I've definitely learned and learned through my various tours of the culture wars is that I actually prefer open racism. Like, I really do. Like, I'm, I actually miss Piers Morgan. Like, I do. <laughs> like, at least with Piers, you just do what you're going to get. He was so predictable. He was great. Um, Malcolm X is my favorite, favorite person. If, you, if you've heard me talk before, you'll certainly know that. And um, Malcolm said there's a, the difference between the, the smiling fox, southern, the smiling, the, the, sorry, the, the southern wolf, who's like the bears their teeth, with a snarl and would be openly racist towards you, and they're, they're the wolf, and then the, the northern fox who bears their teeth in a smile. They're both gonna eat you, but one of them's gonna do it pretending then you're your friend, and one of them's gonna do it and you know where you stand. Right? I prefer the fox, honestly. It's, it just, it's, a, it's a much more productive space to be. And unfortunately, when you think about politics and activism, we need foxes. Like, you'll get mad. So when, when Piers Morgan told me I should, basically told me to go home. Really, I mean, really, there was a couple of, if you watch it on YouTube, he essentially says, if you don't like it, go home, right? Um, people got really, 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 really mad. Uh, but then when Richard Madeley, Richard Madeley said something so, like, I'm very rarely um, speechless, very rarely speechless, but he said on, um, what is, talk about the Queen, we talk about the Queen, I said the Queen is the number one symbol of white supremacy, which, yeah, she, she was, certainly was, <laughs> I, can't, I still can't think of a better symbol. Um, and he, he basically defended the Queen by saying it was the Queen that led the decolonization movements across, <laughs> across the British Empire. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't know what to say. I was literally stunned. <laughs> what do you say to that? But that didn't get anybody mad. Like, that's worse than, than, than Piers Bourne is whatever. But that kind of passive aggressive liberal racism is far worse, far worse. Honestly, like I said, I miss, I miss Piers Morgan because at least you get a. a, a, a I don't know, a response. And, so, and also, that get, that does, this does feed into the book. So the book starts with me talking about my journeys through television, because is, you really can, to have these debates and to see the, I, I don't even know what, can you even call them debates? Like, how many times can I go on TV and be asked, is Britain racist? Like, yes, <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you say, of course. Or, I mean, the, I mean some, of the, some of the things, I mean, the actual, what was the, one of the, what was, I'm trying to think the most ludicrous one. The most ludicrous one, I think, was a Good Morning Britain panel where I was with Calvin Robinson. Do you know Calvin Robinson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Calvin Robinson, um, he's got a big afro, he's on GB News, black guy. He actually got sacked from GB News on his day off because he was defending Lawrence Fox. I mean, that's, that's, that's the sunken place. I think that's, that is actually definitely <laughs> the sunken place when that happens. I mean, Anyway, I won't go into a big Calvin Robertson thing, but other than to say, actually, so no, I was, it was on Zoom, 
and Calvin Robinson, <laughs> you can see his bedroom, and he actually had a Union Jet bedspread. I didn't even know you could get a Union Jet bedspread. I mean, that, that was, that was, that was, again, something place. Um, but <laughs> actually, in the book, to be fair, Calvin does turn up in the book, and there is a big chunk of the book that talks about black skin, white psychosis, because this has become a really big feature, particularly of the media landscape. As I said, now, every time I'm on TV, it will be a black or brown person saying something ridiculous. In fact, on this uh, Politics Live show, uh, Albie, I remember his last name, Albie from GB News, was um, the most offended. He was offended for the white people. Yeah. Like, it was, it was, again, I wasn't speechless because I wasn't really that surprised. But it, it is, it's, it's quite a performance. It's quite a performance to watch. Uh, but again, we shouldn't be surprised, but it has become quite an insidious feature. So uh, Dominic Samuels, I was in the show We Are Black and British, which is on Netflix, and I do recommend it. It's actually quite, quite well made. We did it a few years ago, and it's me and six other, five other black people in our house, and we have all these different debates. And Dominic Samuels was really rabidly right-wing, the Candace Owens of Britain, effectively, which is that's not a compliment, definitely. Um, and, she, we obviously clashed quite heavily on the show, I'd say. Um, but she recently revealed that the Daily Mail have actually have basically been getting white writers to write racist articles and then just putting black faces on them. Right? And so she revealed this because they asked her to write one about um, Carnival, a racist article about Carnival. And in credit to Dom, Dom has some problematic views, but she's still like, like she's still black culturally, she's still there, she goes to Carnival. And so she saw that and was like, nah, nah I can't, that's, that's ridiculous, how could I possibly do this? We offered her quite a lot of money to do it, uh, but she's kind of spilled the beans. This is, this is what's been happening at Daily Mail. So when, when, I, when we say the black face of white racism, or actually, it's like an, I, I didn't think it was actually an actual thing. You are literally putting a black face on white racism, but that's the extent to which these things, these things happen. Um, so it really, it really is quite a pernicious space we're in. Um, really is quite a pernicious space we're in, we're in because of it. And so the question is then, what do, you, what do you do? Where do you go from that? How do you navigate? around it. And this is one of the problems, I think, and to come back to the universities, and uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book is the academic industrial, sorry, anti-white, the anti-racism industrial complex, um, because so much of our, the work that happens trying to address these issues just makes the issues kind of worse. Uh, and one of those is the issue of diversity, right? Like, you'll never hear me argue against diversity. You, I'm one of 150 black professors in the country, 100, 100, sorry, 160 black professors. I shouldn't undercount, right? 160 black professors. I think there's 40, maybe 50 black women, black female professors in the whole country. There's only about 150 higher education institutions in the United Kingdom. So there's basically one of us at each, <laughs> each university. Right? I always joke, you, probably, you may have heard a joke before, but um, we're so few of us, we can't all get on a plane together just in case, because then there'll be none of us left. <laughs> and it wouldn't even be one of those big planes, it would be one of the propellers. Like, it'd be a small, a very small plane. That's how bad it is. So you're not going to hear me say that diversity is a bad thing. Of course, diversity is, is, can be a positive, and we should have more diversity. But the idea that diversity addresses the issue of racism is frankly nonsensical. It's never been the case, ever, really. And we have the most diverse government in the history of the country. It's also the most racist government in my lifetime, certainly. And it's definitely pursuing the most racist immigration policy the country's ever had, like literally ever had, right? Um, and so then you have to wonder where does diversity, where does diversity get us, right? Um, and this is, and this, how, unfortunately though, this is one of the main pillars, if you like, of how we try to address the problem. 
because we individualize the problem, right? We make the problem about individuals. Can you get better individuals? Can you get blacker individuals who, who will be better, etc.? Um, but really, it's not, it's not the solution you think. The, the quote I usually use for this is KRS-One, showing my age. Uh, for those young people, he's a rapper. Um, yeah. When rap was, I'm not gonna sound like an old man. I really don't wanna sound like an old man, but uh, KRS-One had a talking about apartheid in South Africa where he said, um, it's the black cop killing black kids in Johannesburg, right? One of the most racist societies ever, and largely the police were black, right? Just, so the idea that uh, the official Black History Month page in the UK this month, go look at it online. It's just full of pro-police, join the police, join the police, join the police, join the police, as though this is somehow a solution to a structural problem that the police represent. So, so much of what we try to do is, is, is effectively the wrong thing. And then we also try, and one of the problems with the anti-racist industrial complex is that we try to teach out whiteness. And again, my argument here is it's a psychosis. You can't teach it out. It's supported by hallucinations. It's totally and utterly irrational. And actually, all the evidence, so there is quite a lot of work on this, and all the evidence says that people don't change. In fact, when you actually track this, people don't change. It has no impact. Yet people carry on doing it again and again and again, which is actually, I think, one of the definitions of madness. Right? How long do I have? I'm just gonna, if you can leave, leave me here, I'll, I won't stop talking. Ten minutes. All right, good, perfect. All right, so. Yeah, I just, the, one, the other thing I wanted to pick up uh, was this notion of psychosis and also how, like, unlike my colleague, my colleague, partner, person, other person on the show from GB News, I am actually not a shock jock. I actually have a proper job, right? So I don't, I, I don't, I don't just sit there going, what's going to make the most controversy? All right, psychosis is genuine, genuinely the only metaphor I could think of. Honestly, I was like, well, actually, just, let's try and look at whiteness. And I could not think of anything else. So because of the, 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 the scale of which it, the delusions exist. And actually the idea for the, um, it comes, it was a few years ago. So I wrote an article in 2016 after watching Bell. I don't know if you've ever seen Bell. It's a film um, about Bell, Elizabeth Dido. Uh, I think they say, what is it, inspired by a true story when it's nothing to do with the true story? One of those, <laughs> not, it's not based on the true story. It's just mildly influenced by a true story. Uh, Bell is the, um, Probably the only enslaved black woman who grew up in a, the aristocracy in the United Kingdom. She had, her uncle was Chief Lord Justice Mansfield, who was the top uh, judge in the land, and uh, her father took her out of slavery, and he, she grew up in a splendor. Right? And the other film about slavery, and there's only two, still to this day actually, only two big budget movies in the UK about slavery. And the second one is, uh, actually the first one, was Amazing Grace. You come across that one? Amazing Grace 2007 for the bicentenary of the abolition of the British Slave Trade Act. Um, they may as well have called it the Wilbur Farce. It is literally just a movie about William Wilberforce. And actually, the movie basically says that Wilberforce ended slavery, which again is totally and utterly untrue. Slave trade ends in 1807. Slavery doesn't actually end until 1838. I mean, Wilberforce was dead when slavery ended. It's not even 100% clear it was that in favor of the end of slavery. The trade and slavery are two different things, right? And one of the key, actually one of the key, for the UK in particular, um, elements of the psychosis of whiteness is thinking about empire more broadly. So actually have a think yourselves. I'm a professor, so I've gone through all levels of schooling in the UK, and the only time I've heard the word empire in a classroom is when it's come out of my mouth. Literally, never heard it. And this should tell you something, because the British Empire is, by, without a doubt, the most important feature of Britain. 
You literally, Britain doesn't exist without its empire. Its empire, the largest empire that ever existed, 24% of human history, 24% of human population at the time, 24% of the land mass. I mean, it should be impossible to understand the nation without understanding the empire. But that's exactly what we do. Right? And that not really does, that is so, so much to the heart of so many of the delusions that we have about the nation, about race, etc., etc., etc. And one of those things that gets tied into that is the idea of slavery. So back in 2000, actually back in 2007, I was part of a team that looked at the media coverage of the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade. Firstly, they all thought all the newspapers said the abolition of slavery, all of them, like every single one of them. There was, like, there was no difference at all. Um, but then the second thing we found was that they used this term West Indian slavery. So slavery was West Indian, and Britain's role was to abolish slavery. <laughs> like, like no, no idea that Britain was actually the West Indies. There was no real difference um, at all, right? And if you actually, there's a speech I quote in the book from David Cameron when he's um, trying to save the Union and Scot, uh, Scottish, Scot, Scot, Scottish independence referendum, when he actually says Britain is the nation that abolished the slave trade. As though that's all. There's <laughs> not that is not what the role for Britain. And you know the amount of times, even today, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed, and people are sending me, "Oh no, look, we ended the slave trade. Da, 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 what, why, are you, why are you upset for?" I mean, <laughs> well, again, what do you say though? Like, partly, partly, again, why I wrote the book was um, therapy. <laughs> it makes you feel much better when you understand it's delusional. There's not much you can do. Like, I'm not going to spend my time, it's no point in spending time responding to those kind of ideas. It just makes you upset. You're, the, you're, you're turning yourself crazy um, by doing that. Um, and so this idea of West Indian slavery is deeply problematic, um, obviously, because you know, Britain was the premier slave trading nation in the 18th century. The Royal African Company is the company that enslaves the most African people of any company in the entire world, right? Um, Britain's, Britain literally couldn't have any of its prominence without without slavery, um, but this idea that it's something distant uh, really, really, really just shows we don't have any understanding of race relations in Britain. Uh, so the idea that slavery is an American thing. Well, no, my family was descended from the enslaved, as were many people, millions of people in this country's family descended from the enslaved. And then also there is the, the impact. So actually we're in Black History Month and one of, the, one of the things that really gets to me is when we have to try, it's like we need to try to prove that there were black people on the British Isles hundreds of years ago. I mean, they were, but it's actually irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Because when my family was in Jamaica, they were in Britain. And everything they did in Jamaica benefited Britain. It wasn't something we moved over here, we started benefiting Britain with the NHS. We were already, but the NHS couldn't exist without our labor on slave plantations. Same in India, same in Africa, same in the rest of the, the empire. If we understood that one basic thing, it would make us think very, 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 very differently about the nation. But the point is we, we don't do that because we can't do it, right? To do it would mean that we would then have to think revolutionarily about where we are, about our place in the world, right? Um, I really wanted to end on a more positive, but it's going to get really depressing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and work away. <laughs> work away better. How long? Five? Five. Five minutes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. five minutes, plenty, plenty, plenty of time. Um, because the other thing I like to, to stress with this, so we thought like slavery is one very good example, and these movies are a perfect example of hallucinations. That was the second part of it. The hallucinations. What are the hallucinations that support the psychosis? It's pretty easy to find distorted delusional thinking. And then my argument was actually these movies, these are the these are the hallucinations. And I would stress that Bell is written and directed by two black women. So again, this is not about white people. We all perpetuate these. And there is this one video of Amara Santi talking about 
Uh, and she's kind of giggling about the idea of putting a black woman in a Jane Austen period drama. Uh, I don't know, like, we were, black women were part of the period, just not in the costumes, right? We're do, doing something else. But it's like, it's almost, we can't tell that's the truth, the real, because the real story will be too problematic, right? So we make up these fantasy versions to make us all feel better. And this is the thing, you shouldn't, if you're having a discussion about race, even, though, even I'm saying, look, I should end positively, but the truth is, any discussion about white supremacy, you should feel bad at the end. You should feel uncomfortable. It is actually very, very, very deeply uncomfortable. And again, I stress not just for white people, for us as well. Like I said, professor, chief constable, not so different. Um, I'm one of the top earners in the world, and not because I earn that much money, just because most people don't earn very much money at all. If you're in the, the poorest person here, it's probably in the top 20 percentile of income, right? You have a welfare state, you get a house, you get, it's not great, but you get food, clothes, shelter, get education, etc., etc. Most people don't have those protections around the world. In fact, most people in the world live in conditions which are very similar to 100 years ago, or even worse than 100 years ago. Um, we like to think that things are progressing, but actually, for the majority of people, don't have indoor toilets. Um, poverty, like I said, so-called sub sub-Saharan Africa in particular, they're supposed to have 90% of all people who live in extreme poverty in the next 50 years. So you can actually make an argument things aren't getting better for many people. They're getting better for some people, and they're getting worse for other people. Right? Um, and even think about the technologies. This is one of the... Yeah, this is really, really getting dark, sorry, I'm going to pull it back. But think about the technology. So mobile phones would be the great example. So mobile phones have become the kind of centerpiece of our black movements, right? Black Lives Matter isn't possible without mobile phones. But how do we have mobile phones? Because kids in the Congo are going down mines that are collapsing on them to get coal tan, right? The very thing that, is that makes our politics possible is the very thing which is, is the best symbol of African oppression probably that you can have in it if we hold it in our hands. Right? How do you square that? How do you actually square that? So rather than try to square it and deal with the contradiction, we just make up fantasies. Right? That's the psychosis. That's the purpose of a psychosis, to keep us thinking, and I do say us thinking, that it's okay when it's really not okay. A child dies every 10 seconds because they haven't got access to food and water. They're all black and brown. And literally, every 10 seconds since I've been talking, you could literally pile up the dead bodies of kids. And that is because of our prosperity. Right? When you actually accept that, you have to, that, 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 should make you, that should make you feel upset, right? The end, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, that should not, it should, but it should make us feel upset and it should make us feel uncomfortable, right? And this is something I always try to do, to say, well, actually, look, we have to have a global approach to the way that we think about society. When you do that, it's, it's pretty bleak. But that doesn't, it's not, take it back, it's not bleak. It's just, the, it's just the acceptance that we need to do different things. Right? So I would, I would say that if we carry on doing the same things that we do, are doing, then it is bleak. There is no good future. It would all be terrible. Right? Um, and actually, this was the positive end that I came to this new age of empire, is if we carry on, the, world, the whole world will end because of um, climate change. So maybe we should stop. Right? Maybe we should just really think, let's do something different. Um, but we can do something differently. I think this is, this, this is where the real, the radical argument can often seem like the pessimistic argument. Because I am literally telling you, there is nothing you can do to fix this system. It is not, the key thing is it's not broken, right? The fact that a child dies every 10 seconds isn't an example of the system not working. That is the logic of the system. This is a system built on genocide, colonialism, and slavery. That it's a system built on black and brown death. Do not be surprised that it kills black and brown people today, right? Again, sounds pessimistic, but actually, it's really optimistic, because what we're saying is, you shouldn't try to reform this system, but we can do something else, right? There are other alternatives. I don't, 
hands up, who actually thinks that racism can be eradicated from Britain? Does anybody think racism can be eradicated from Britain? No. No, my light was one hand, we got one, one hope, maybe we got another one here. But see, most of you don't think, most of you agree with me, right? That it's not actually possible. The thing we're trying to do isn't really possible. What's more pessimistic than actually understanding that the thing you want to do is impossible and then trying to do it anyway? That's pessimistic, right? The optimistic is to say, let's just leave that alone and do something else. All right? It's like, I'll give you another map of Mexico because this is only the second one. This is, this is, a, this is a record. Um, I need to throw more Malcolm X into the, into the speech. But Malcolm says, the system can no more provide freedom, justice, and equality for black people than a chicken can lay a duck egg. Right? It's just not meant to do it. And once we realize that, then we free ourselves. Right? We can step back and we can say, let's do something else. And if Malcolm was standing, so 50 years ago, Malcolm's talking about revolution. And the next book, actually, is about the politics of Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm's talking about revolution. It wasn't. It didn't sound crazy. Like when I say it now, like, oh, revolution, don't be ridiculous, what are you talking about? But 50 years ago, it wasn't, very, it wasn't clear the West would survive. It wasn't clear the West would be predominant. You had communism, you had Pan-Africanism, movements in Latin America. 50 years on, because of violence, but more so because of incorporation, and this is kind of again by the book, we've been incorporated to an extent where we are starting to be deluded. Like 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, black people in this country weren't part of the system. We weren't. I would not have my job. It's like I said, it's unlikely I have my job now. But 50 years ago, forget about it. But what's happened, race relations legislation, uh, civil rights legislation, independence, independence don't, uh, don't get me started on independence. Independence <laughs> movements, uh, we're now kind of in. And we're, all, we're starting to feel comfortable that there's no alternative. Now, I promise you, it's not the case. Remove the scales from your eyes, see the scale of destruction that still is happening today, and then understand we can do something different. Revolution is an actual solution. There are things that we can do which don't rely on this deeply problematic system. That's the optimistic message of the book. And really, I'm just trying to get you to shake you awake, to understand and to see the truth, um, that we have to do things radically different. Right? And if we don't, then we're going to be in, in a very, very bad position in the future. But there's always possibility. And within your lifetime, right? definitely within your lifetime, these things can definitely shift and definitely change. And I'm going to stop there before I go negative, too negative again. <laughs> All right, thanks. Thank you so much for this wonderful presentation. Can it? And now I'm I hand over to Sarah Camacho, Felix. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, I have lots of notes written. Um, these are my initial responses from having read the book, uh, which I was glad to hear some of the things echo with what you were saying. Because the thing about a half an hour talk when you have a whole book is not knowing what's going to come up. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot in there, quite a bit. Um, so I'm just going to go through this as sort of my own personal reflections uh, shaped by my own thinking, my own research, the things I've witnessed um, as a way of sort of digging into some of these, these wonderful, wonderful points in terms of the clarity of the points, though, uh, as you were right to point out, they're dark, they're heavy. Um, so um, the psychosis of whiteness really does offer a, an in-depth look at the irrationality that governs whiteness um, and the delusions that maintain the white supremacist political and economic system. Um, and I particularly appreciate this connection between the political and the economic and the cultural reproduction as well. Um, by drawing on the uh, analogy of psychosis filled with hallucinations and delusions, uh, Candy Andrews is able to 
sort of highlight the levels of denial, detachment from reality, and illogic needed to be able to maintain and justify a racist, social, political, and economic system. Whiteness, in his book, is a form of collective psychosis, and I think that collective is important. It is not about the individual. Um, uh, the book weaves through history, education, politics, equality and diversity initiatives, which I have very strong thoughts on, um, and the anti-racist self-help books to museums, films, and other forms of cultural production, um, jumping across contexts in both the United States, the United Kingdom, South Africa, Brazil, um, to show how the psychosis manifests itself. And in doing this, he offers a systemic breakdown of how the psychosis operates, reproduces itself, and maintains itself systemically through institutions and structures, and uses case study after case study after case study. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. The ideas in the work themselves are not original. They draw on the work of Malcolm X, Charles Mills, uh, France Fanon and others who also understood the deep-seated delusional dangers of whiteness. Um, the work of many revol uh, revolutionary black scholars and activists and anti-colonialists have also set out to demonstrate not only the levels of dispossession, exploitation, and genocide at the hands of colonialism and post-colonial continuations of empire. They have also demonstrated the levels of twisted logic that Europe and her settler colonies go through to justify these acts, while painting themselves as the white knight saviors of the world. While reading this book, um, as it weaves through the delusions of whiteness used to justify racist politics and economics, drawing on the UK and the US, I was reminded of the work of Edouard Monland um, and how in his 1969 book, The Struggle for Mozambique, he highlights the brutality of the Portuguese colonial regime in Mozambique. Um, newsflash, I'm Portuguese with Angolan descent. Um, so Mondlin, he doesn't just stop at making visible the slavery or forced labor that was still present in the colonies post-1960. He also highlights how the Portuguese created an education system that left Africans either completely uneducated and therefore under the law able to be enslaved, or assimilated the population into whiteness. And then two, how the Portuguese repeatedly claimed to be incapable of racism. Mondlin demonstrates the level of delusion held by the Portuguese whiteness by referring to both the fascist prime minister, Antonio um, Bolivar Salazar, and the Brazilian historian, Gilberto Freire. Mondlin quotes Salazar saying, Portuguese contacts with overseas territories, which is what the Portuguese at the time called their colonies, has never involved the slightest idea of superiority or racial domination. Um, and then the Brazilian historian Gilberto Freire argued that the Portuguese and Roman Catholic faith were specifically equipped to live in peace with various cultures and races, and therefore were preordained to lead the world towards racial harmony. Um, anyone familiar with Brazil or Portuguese politics should 
I laugh because there's no other response to that. Um, and then, of course, Monlin continues to dismantle any delusional belief that these statements could possibly be true by painstakingly displaying the realities of the social structures, education, and economic systems of the Portuguese colonization step by step. On a side note, Portugal is still deeply in the throes of white supremacist delusions, as the myth of being the good colonizer still echoes through Portuguese politics. Prime Minister Antonio Costa, himself a socialist of Goan descent and born in Mupuntu, uh, Mupuntu uh, Mozambique, has peddled in this delusional myth. In 2017, he gave a spe uh, speech praising Magellan and the Portuguese discoveries for discovering new worlds and new people and new ideas. A great adventure started here, Portugal, to connect the human race. A year later, Costa suggested that Portuguese colonization should be remembered with pride. And even today, the city of Lisbon continues to use bureaucracy to stall the opening of a memorial to the African lives lost in the slave trade. But I digress. Candy uh, Andrews' book follows much in the tradition of Monland and others, demonstrating the level of structural, systemic, and institutional racism that exists, and thereby the level of delusional reasoning needed to uphold it. Andrews brings the argument into the 21st century, drawing on contemporary issues in education, politics, museums. Oh, here, chapter on museums was, yeah, spot on. Um, films, as he did, and, and EDI practices. I do have to say, in Andrews' book, the author does seem a little bit exhausted by doing the task, or maybe that's my reading of it, as he seems to have the voice of someone saying, I can't believe I still have to point it out. <laughs> because everything in the book is indeed glaringly obvious. Uh, there are two things I particularly like about the book that I would like to highlight. The first is he does not let the UK off the hook. Throughout the book, Andrew zooms into the US and then the UK, or the UK and then the US, to demonstrate how these same systems exist across the two countries. His aim is clear to make it clear that the UK is equally racist despite claims that racism is a US issue and not a UK one. I have now lived in the UK the same amount of time that I lived in the United States, nine years in each country. And in each one, I have witnessed and experienced deeply racist systems, racist educational institutions, and racist social structures, with liberals focusing on racist individuals and myths of the post-racial society. However, in the UK, I experienced a further layer of frustration, continually being told that racism is a US problem and the main forms of inequality in the UK are along class lines. This has left me bewildered, angry, and at times at a complete loss, questioning my own reality and understanding of the world as I witnessed, like so many of us, the deportation of the Windrush generation I keep wondering, in what world is the UK not racist? Andrews puts the, these myths or delusions to bed. He details the UK's central role in the West Indian slave trade and its overblown belief in its unilateral role in abolishing it. Mm, no. He highlights white self-segregation and its need to blame quote-unquote multicultural neighborhoods for not being integrated despite the role of white flight. 
He points out the racist logics that sit at the heart of British anti-immigration, including the deportation of the Windrush generation, Brexit, the policing of black and brown bodies, and the hideous plans of deporting folks to Rwanda. And he demonstrates the white supremacist thought that sits at the heart of museums. Britain is indeed racist. The second part of the book I want to highlight is the epilogue, Out of the Rabbit Hole because you have definitely been led through the rabbit hole throughout the book. Um, in many ways, I wish this had been weaved throughout the book, the call and the demand for revolutionary action. But he waits to the very end to draw us out of the rabbit hole. And as no one who is familiar with Andrew's work should be surprised, the answer is not educating individuals nor expecting allies to come to the rescue. As Andrew states, and expecting this feeds into the narratives of white saviors that are themselves deeply racist. Rather, the answer is revolution built, aimed at building a world free of white supremacy. Specifically, he writes, if we want to build another world, we must imagine it. This requires seeing the world for what it is and knowing another world is possible. Thatcher and her famous quote, there is no alternative, Tina, was not only a myth or a delusion, it was the ultimate act of white supremacy. It attempted to ensure that revolutionary imagination was shut down and that economic political systems could continue to function off of the bodies of minoritized people. This is a lie. We need to reclaim our imaginations away from Tina to imagine what a world revolution could build an alter alternative to our current political and economic system that is built on care and humanity, free of the delusions of whiteness that allow for the dispossession and exploitation of black and brown bodies justified through irrational beliefs of superiority, a world where hierarchies of beings are destroyed and color lines are erased. And with that imagination comes the requirement to act together and loudly to make it in the interest of the system to change because not changing would be worse. This happens, this is what happened with the anti-colonial movements across the African continent, a revolution so demanding that it was in the interest of Europe to withdraw politically, not economically, as we see currently. This is what happened in the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s. It was in the interest of the US government to pass the Civil Rights Act because the alternative was to endure worse, worse more civil unrest. These projects offered some victories, but they are unfinished projects. Therefore, Andrews calls on us to face our own complicities in the system that is white supremacy and how we have been under the same collective psychosis of whiteness, because as he stated, you do not need to be white to suffer under the psychosis, to face our shame and guilt, and then to get over it, because it's not about us, the individual. Then we need to take up the revolutionary mantle and continue to dismantle this system to free us from the psychosis of whiteness. As good you enjoyed the book, that would have been really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, right next to you. <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for your presentations. Um, we will now open the floor to questions. So remember to mention your name and affiliation, please. For those online, please type short questions into the Q&A box, and we will try to answer as many as possible.
And for those here, please just raise your hand and I will select the questions. I will take a couple of questions from the audience here. And after a couple of questions from the audience um, online. Hi there. Um, yeah, my name's Ella. Um, I'm a postgraduate from LSE. I really enjoyed the talk. Thank you very much. Um, so, for me, the question would be what would be the alternative to whiteness? Should I? Do you want to take a couple? Or? Yeah. yeah. What's the alternative to whiteness? Um, like I said, there's, there's loads of different alternatives, right? It's not like one alternative. Certainly, like I said, the book is a part of a trilogy, if you like, with Back to Black being the, the actual, the, third, the last one, which is the, you can have black revolutionary politics. Like, that's actually what I actually spend a lot of time, unlike, I, I actually don't think about whiteness that much, which is why I probably sounded exhausted. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. No, this is obvious, but yeah. Um, actually, what my, my, I'd say, uh, we have a political agenda that so you can have black radical politics. And that looks like, Revolutionary Pan-Africanism, there's a lot of models for that. Africa's still the only place in the world that can, effectively has everything it needs to take itself out of the world system. So that's what we're doing. So we started the Harambe Organization of Black Unity. We also have a website called Make It Plain, make-it-plain.org, where we had like different pieces on that. And in the next, uh, so May 2025 is Malcolm's 100th birthday. Our plan is to have a Congress of African people on the continent, haven't got a venue, we're not got a venue, we're gonna advertise it. But to say, let's bring us together and let's build that, that radical alternative. So yeah, certainly, it's not, for me, it's not a theoretical thing, it's a practical thing. And certainly there is a black radical politics that gives you a very, very, very clear alternative that can make the world look very different. Uh, Kevin Orr, um, member of the public. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to understand a bit more about um, uh, how you dismantle uh, the system um, when you've got um, gatekeepers uh, such as Thomas Sowell from America and Tony Sowell, not related, who wrote the um, report that Britain is not institutionally racist. Um, to me, it's like I liken these types of people to um, uh, the gatekeepers on the plantation who are still working for Massa. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to understand a bit more of that. Yeah, so I mean, uh, Tony Sewell, uh, the sewage report does turn up in the, uh, <laughs> in the, in the um, but actually, you know what, I actually write in the book, and I said that, that the sewage report is my favourite government report, honestly, like, no, nah, because we had the, what was my first report, the institutional racism exists, and everybody's all praising it, I have had that report quoted to me when complaining about racism, and the, and the university telling me, oh no, we're not racist, look at the McPherson report. Well, uh, like, what do you, what do you, again, what do you do, right? So we, we have to, what we have to understand is the government is not your friend. So the first report is not better. In fact, it's more dangerous. At least with the sewage report, we, um, we understand what it is. Everybody got really angry, right? And it promoted all this action. Whereas McPherson, you start to fall asleep. So the thing about these gatekeepers, gatekeepers to what? Like, if you think that the government is the way to solve racism, I've got, I got really bad news for you. It's really not. Right? It's really not. This is my argument here. Look, these institutions are not made for us. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do some things. Like, as much as it's hard to say about Labour, especially now, I mean, bloody hell. I mean, the last, few, the last couple of weeks, and talk about an example of psychosis of whiteness. I mean, Israel, Palestine, and the coverage is just a, the, the perfect example, which I actually should have, should have talked about in the talk. I mean, just the way that we understand the world is so deeply deluded. Um, that what, what can you say, right? So if this is my point here is, 
people like Sewell, Sewell, they're not, they're not even for us. They're not even dangerous, right? So actually in the book, I go, I go through a number of terms which <laughs> are now deemed to be racial slurs, but actually aren't. So like, coon is perfectly fine to use if you use it in the right context. And the context of Sewell report is cooning. Cooning is, but if you go back to the, go back to like, blackface minstrel shows, what was cooning for? Cooning was to um, titillate white audiences. It was his racist representation to titillate white audiences. And this is what we have now. We have a number of black and brown people who are effectively cooning. That's for white audiences. When I go on TV and I've got Albie, the GB news guy next to me, it's cooning, right? That's not for us. It's not dangerous. Because no, no black person reads a sewer report. Well, no, a few black people might listen to Thomas Sowell, but very few. Um, you know, not Kenny Badenoch. I said Kenny Badenoch. We were going to pray. It was not going to be like the Obama moment when Kevin Badenoch becomes Prime Minister, we're all gonna go, bloody hell, that's, that's, that's terrible, right? So that's not for us. The more dangerous is the people who are supposed to lead us astray. So actually the, the term, I, term I use, which I totally stole from Malcolm X and do quote him quite heavily, is Uncle Tom. Right? So Uncle Tom's much more dangerous. And Uncle Tom was the, um, ironically, do you know who, do you know, question to the audience, do you know who the person was that Malcolm X called Uncle Tom the most? Martin Luther King. Right, Martin Luther King, who's definitely black, right? You wouldn't say he's, he's not cooning, he's, he's trying his best. But what was the critique was, King's dangerous because people follow him and you're, he's leading you astray. And that's what Uncle Tom is. And that's a whole section of the book where I talk about <laughs> Nelson Mandela. But Nelson Mandela, by days, the, the biggest sellout that ever existed. Yet we celebrate this. Like, I went to three Nelson Mandela things. But actually, if you look, who, who sells out the African Revolution more than Mandela? Nobody. You can't think of a better example. And actually, he's really, he actually honest about it. He tells you. Actually, read the last long walk to freedom. He actually says, he doesn't say I sell out, but he basically tells you, right? So that's more dangerous. And so what I'm, what I'm arguing here is that we need to build alternatives. This is what we need to focus on. And that isn't looking at the national, isn't looking at the government. It's looking at the, the global movement, global black nation. The model effectively is um, Universal Negro Improvement Association, Garfield Movement, had between two and eight million members 100 years ago, right, across the world. This is what we need to go back to, understanding that we need to have different uh, institutions, not the ones that exist. But we, look, we live here, we have to be here, we have to get through as much as you can, certainly try to do that. But what we should actually be doing is saying we need to build something else. And then you don't need to worry about the gatekeepers because they're, 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 <laughs> they're not in your way. They're really not in your way if we're trying to do something different. Right? Um, <laughs> got one question online. Um, yes, we got two questions online. The first is from Laila Adwan Kamara, who's one of our AFSI fellows in Ghana, um, who said, I can dream of alternatives for sure, but how can they realistically be achieved against the interests of corporations, media, and the people benefiting from the system? Uh, the second question is from Clive Powell, who said, how does class feature in your analysis? Uh, yeah, so first things first is to understand that it's realistic. Like, for, for one, and I do stress this, all empires fall, and this empire will fall, and actually it seems to be falling kind of rapidly, right? So the idea that this is how it's going to be forever is just clearly not true. This, look at, through history, this is going to end. And it might end and it might be worse. If we don't do anything different, the, the next thing could be worse. China, not great. AI, we might all die. Like, there's a lot of things, a lot of things that might be worse, right? So, firstly, we have to stop. The idea is not realistic because it looks like it's, it's, it's no. We had, I mean, in slavery, you had the Haitian Revolution. Who would have thought the Haitian Revolution, Haiti could overthrow the French, could beat 
Not only the French beat the British, beat the Spanish. They usually beat everybody. That, that, there's no way to conceive that was possible, right? But it was possible. Um, and again, this is where we have to, like, I'm not, we can't be against gradual incremental progress, but incremental progress does not mean trying to get into the system. In, incremental progress is how do we get into incremental progress to revolution? So as I said, in 50 years, if we do things very differently, we can be in a very different place. So it looks now like it's bleak, but again, 50 years ago, it looked like revolution was going to happen, actually going to happen. So it's about how do we build in those things? And like I said, you do that by building organization, by building connection, which is why trying to bring people together to make to sow the seeds, and then you can move on to the next bit. But if part of what the psychosis is, is this, there is no alternative. That there's nothing you can do. It's not realistic. Corporations, corporations have their power because we cede our power to them. The biggest lie against black people is that we don't have power. That's why they came and took us in the first place, right? We had the power to build the bloody world. That was through slavery, right? Africa's the richest continent on the planet, which is why everyone's in there taking bits off it, right? So we have the power. And the biggest um, problem for black people actually has not been understanding ourselves as black people. It's not been organizing collectively as black people. Because actually, the sad, the sad part of this historical truth is, had we had black consciousness, did, had Africa acted as Africa when Europeans came in, slavery don't happen. Europe was behind actually behind. And the reason Europe was able to take over was because they played us off against each other. They, 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 they inveigled themselves in. But we were actually ahead. And had we acted together, slavery doesn't happen. And so if we act together now, we can do something different. But yeah, we have to build that. It's not the, it has to take, takes time, right? Um, did you want to add? I don't know if you No, I, I, you mentioned Haiti, which was what I wanted to mention. <laughs> so yes. Yeah. Um, and class, how does class features in, in two ways? One, class is um, uh, wanted. So the way we think, so the way we currently think about class is part of the psychosis, a really important part of the psychosis. Right? The idea that you have a class system which isn't global is nonsensical. So the idea is a British working class and American working class. No, we are in a global capitalist system. The real working class, the real oppressed people are not in this country. That's the reality. They're in, I tell you, the kids in Congo, in the sweatshops in China and India, etc. The notion that you can have a class system in, that's just in the UK, who, how? How is that? That's, that's always been the problem with Marxism and the left. That it doesn't understand, we have a, which is ironic because actually it's a global argument that doesn't and then say, well, let's look at class globally. And if we looked at class globally, we'd look very, 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 very differently, right? And then the other thing you have is this white working class, I mean, there's a whole chunk in the book about this, is just become what I call the new racial science. Like, the ra what ra old racial science was based on the idea that we're inferior. There's, there's no evidence for it, but you can make evidence for whatever you want. And the new racial science is the, the idea that actually it's white people who are the worst off. White people are suffering the worst. And again, there's no evidence to support this, but you can make up any evidence that you want. So for instance, if you look at the white, that white working class thesis, it's based almost exclusively on GCSE performance of students on free school meals. Well, guess what? Free school meals is not a measure of class. Unless I miss my Marxist class, I'm a sociologist by training, I'm pretty sure Marx never defined look, those who have free school meals and those who don't. Free school meals are a terrible measure of class. What free school meals tell you is, actually, look at the free school meal data, they tell you racism. If you're a black Caribbean, you are about twice as likely to be on free school meals in the first place. So that, that data is actually telling you racial inequality, right? And so, certainly, I don't know anybody who would argue that poor people don't do the poor people do poor people there's a, there's a disadvantage if you're poor in a capitalist society anybody will tell you that i'll tell you that's obvious of course so of course if you take poor white people they're not going to be doing that, work, that great but the biggest conceit here is this essay twice as likely if you're black caribbean to be on free school meals so you're comparing 14 percent of white households with 28 percent of black caribbean households 
These are not comparable. And why? Because of racism. Because of racism, the people in the 28% who don't have the income probably are much more likely to have uh, decent, well, not, not had good qualifications, but bad jobs. Right? How, many, how many black people do you know who have good qualifications, but bad jobs? Good educational performance, but bad jobs. Can't get into the workforce, can't go high up the workforce. Right? So you're not comparing like for like. I absolutely promise you, if you compared the bottom 14% of black people and the bottom 14% of white people, we're doing worse. There's no comparison. So anybody that tells you white working class is a lie, there's no class data in schools at all, then that one bit of 16 is just one piece of data. Look at every other piece of data from education will tell you racism. A-levels, like two years later, racial discrimination, very clear. University, where I work, and we're in there. If you're not white, even if you do well in school, even those groups, Chinese, Indians do better, Still don't still do worse in, in higher education. And you're telling me there's a white working class to do worse. Nonsense. And then look at jobs. Far less likely to get good jobs, etc., etc., etc. So you literally take one bit of noise data, which is essentially noise, and then extrapolate it to be this whole white working class. It's nonsense. Honestly, nonsense. And then the bigger problem is, look, I'm again not arguing you shouldn't do things for poor white people. There's a problem, right? But the explanation was given for this is that all this stuff has been given to us. There's too much focus on black people. Honestly, there has not been any government programs, any significant government programs to address the problems of black people in education. Not a solitary one. There was the only thing you can kind of think about is the ethnic minority achievement gap, which is hardly any money and it didn't do anything other than mentoring. So there's actually been no money put into it and we spend billions, I mean billions of pounds get spent on the class issue in schooling. Free school meals, pupil premium. Uh, before it was um, aim higher, all this stuff, all class related. So the, the idea that we're getting all this stuff is nonsense. Any progress that has been made has been made because communities have organized Saturday schools, uh, faith schools. I mean, Muslim, like, why has the Muslim community jumped up, Pakistani, Bangladesh gone up? Because they organized faith schools, they organized in the community, and then, and then are pilloried for doing faith schools. <laughs> like, your schools are too Muslim, this is the problem. <laughs> and actually, that's been the thing that's brought up the attainment. Honestly, nonsense, 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 nonsense. That doesn't mean the class isn't important, but you have to understand how we get the class system we have, and the class system we have cannot be divorced from racism. It's the reason that black people are more likely to be in the working class is racism in the first place. And then look globally, and you'll find, if you actually look to the class system globally, we'd have a completely different discussion of class and a much better one anyway. If I can uh, yeah. piggyback back off of your comments on education especially. So uh, in 2019, I was doing research at LSC on what is often called the uh, BAME attainment gap, so black, um, Asian, minority, ethnic attainment gap. It's the award gap. It's not an attainment issue. It's an awarding issue. It's a recognition issue. And when you look at the data, the government tends to uh, wonderfully put together, wonderfully, this, that's sarcastic, uh, in case it wasn't clear, put all uh, ethnic minorities into the same group and then compare them to white, which hides the issue, right? And so when I was looking at the data for LSE, not only did I disaggregate so that we could see all the different groups and how they were doing, but also then gendered it so we got racialized gender. And when you do that and you specifically look at distinctions, who's getting the best marks, it is consistently white men. So that excellence is reserved for white men. And that's in the marking of your degrees, which thereby determines your ability to go into a master's degree if you're an undergraduate student, continue in this institution if you really want to continue in this institution, right? It has so many knock-on effects. 
And when we looked at the very, the, the problem with classes, as you mentioned in the book, is trying to measure a person's class, right? And, and the UK government tends to focus on, on uh, postcodes, which is uh, very inexact. But we didn't find, when we just looked at postcodes, a big difference in attainment. It was only when we disaggregated the racial attainment and looked at that distinction that it became huge difference. Something like 70% chance for a white guy to get a distinction, 30% chance for a black Caribbean, black African woman. And I think that sort of speaks for itself. So we have a question on the, on the left. Hello, I'm Halima. I work in public policy. Um, I had a question for you about, so I really like Malcolm X as well, God rest his soul. Um, my question for you about is the role of religion in black politics, because obviously it's played a big role in um, a lot of black history and it was a massive part of Malcolm's story. Um, and I had a kind of secondary question about at what point does, um, does black politics ever become synonymous with justice or equality politics? And like if we get far enough with it, does it at some point not become about race, but more about justice and equality linked to religion? Thank you. Can we have another question? Hi, thanks. Liz Jetchi, member of the public. I'd just like to say I really love this book. Um, I've read several of your other books, and I just want to say, do you feel that this is your best book that you've written so far? <laughs> Thank you. That's, a, that's an easy question. I like that one. <laughs> um, religion. Um, it's interesting because... So Malcolm is a, is a Muslim. Um, starts off nation Islam. It isn't really Islam, that's a whole other conversation. And then becomes devout. And actually, as he becomes more devout, he actually says religions are less important, ironically. Right? So he says, look, we have, I'm a Muslim and that's important to me, but actually the organization, organization of Afro-American unity that he founds, and we've based the Rambi organization of black unity on, is secular. Right? And somebody wants to I told this to somebody once, it was, a, it was a white academic. And he said, oh, secular, so that means you're Western. I don't, I don't think that's what it means, right? The idea that you can have non-religious politics means you somehow a Western idea. It's, again, deeply psychosis, right? Like the, the West creates all ideas and all knowledge, etc. So in terms of the organization, in that sense, I'd follow Malcolm in that, to say that actually the, the problem that we have is, is collective, and it can, that can include any religion. He's saying, look, you're, you can bring in Muslims, Christians, etc., but we have, we have an issue, which is around our blackness, which we come together on, and our religion is a personal issue, personal matter. For that. Uh, but again, he stayed, but he stayed devout in doing that. Um, and that was actually a, a departure from Malcolm and the Nation of Islam, because the Nation of Islam is the opposite. Nation of Islam is you have to be in the Nation of Islam or you're going to be wiped out in the apocalypse. Um, and so after he leaves the nation, he actually becomes much more open to like talks in churches, going around, making these links, etc. etc. And I do think that's important, because we do have lots of different religions. And when you start getting that, that conversation, it's so, it's so complicated. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Christianity and Islam, the impacts on black people, I give you a whole two hours on how terrible that has been. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Christianity and Islam has produced some of the most radical black political thought. So it's one of those things where you just say, look, as long as your religion ain't getting in the way, let's just say Malcolm explains it. So he says, look, if I go, I don't mind coming to a church, but if a church has got a white Jesus, white angels, you're singing, he will wash you white as snow, that's white nationalism. I'm not coming to that church. I'm going to stay away. But if the church is black liberation theology, I'm going to come into that church because that's something that we can organize on and, and, and work on. So we, because of those differences that we have, it has to be something where we come together on a different, different basis. Otherwise, it's always going to be loggerheads. Um, I think, look, black, the thing about blackness is it, is it isn't about race. So this is a, a whole another conversation. But blackness and race are different things. 
Right, so race is white supremacy, race is biology, race is hierarchy. Blackness is essentially saying the color of our skin, the kink in our hair, that connects us together. There's a historical thing which connects us together. It puts us in the same boat in the way that we're treated, but it also puts us in the same boat because you can't, I can't tell my story without that. It's important to me. And particularly because as somebody from the enslaved, formerly enslaved, every, everything else was wiped out. Right, and my Africanness was white. I have no connection. No, I can't tell you where I'm from, can't tell you language, can't tell you religion, can't tell you anything, it's gone. The one thing we have is this, this and it connects us in it, and it keeps us in, and it says that we use that as a basis of which to produce our politics. But that does not, and this is, this is what, um, we call it a political essentialism. So oftentimes people get confused with like cultural essentialism. So that doesn't mean you have to behave a certain way, talk a certain way, or act a certain way. It does mean you have to think a certain way. Think black, which means think we're together, think we should bring, lift up the community, think we should move forward. And really importantly, that is about justice, right? That's the whole point of blackness. Blackness comes into existence to be anti-racist because we have racism, we're being attacked, but it says we need to organize for justice. And there's a, the best way I heard this put was William Cross, who is, um, uh, talked about, he's a black psychologist, has a whole paper called Negro to Black Conversion Experiences. And he says, black studies is the understanding of the universal through the particular, right? And once you embrace like a black radical perspective, it changes the way you understand the world. Similarly to actually, Patricia Hill Collins did a, won an award, uh, this won a million dollars this, 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 uh, just this week from some foundation in the States. Uh, and and um, Patricia's work, foundational for many reasons, but one of those is the idea of a black female standpoint, a black feminist standpoint, where you can see the world through the eyes of black women, you see the world differently. And not just black people differently, you see the whole world differently. And so I, I, we have this podcast, uh, Make It Play More. Actually, this week, is Patricia, Patricia Hill Collins is on the podcast on Friday. And um, I, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, they, they last week I was talking about Israel-Palestine. And it was only through black radicalism, I'm reading not, that I was like, had any interest in this. But once you do, you have, you know, there's, no, there's only one way to see it, right? You see, truth is on the side of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. So it opens up the way. And if you actually think about what, who, who were the people who were the most global in the average. It's Pan-African leaders, and Krumers is your Kenyatta's is your, you're saying actually this is about blackness, how we lift up, but that actually transforms the whole world, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is always about justice, I'd say that much. Uh, what was the question, sorry. So thank you, firstly, this is a nice, this is a nice question. Um, <laughs> is it the best book? It's the best written book, but it's not the best book. Best book is Back to Black. I know, Back to Black is the, Back to Black is the black revolutionary book, but this book is the book that's, it's, it's, I had the most fun writing it. <laughs> the tone's a little bit different, like it's still, it's still academic-ish, like it's got references in it, but, <laughs> but it's also got a shrug emoji in yeah. the book, which I had to draw in line so they keep it in the book. Okay? So yeah, it's the best written, and like, I like the style of it, but it's not the best book. The best book is Bad to Black. That'll always be the best book. I shouldn't say that to the producers here, but <laughs> Bad to Black is the one that outlines Black Radical. This, this is the best written. It's the one there. My uh, mother-in-law. So my mother-in-law said, "Oh, this is finally a book I can read." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, wow, I really thought New Age of Empire. I tried really hard. I thought that would be." She's like, "No, no, not readable." But this one, <laughs> she, she she could read. So then I knew I'd achieved something when it's it's readable. Because one of the Malcolm X quotes I like again, and what we say, what we've called the podcast and the website, make it plain, is because you know we read, like I hate academic writing. I hate it. I hate doing it. I hate reading it. Everything about it. Why can't we just make things really, why can't we make them plain? If people can't understand them and engage with them, what's the point in it? And so in that sense, it's definitely the best written book I would say I've done to this point. Maybe the next book will be better written as well. Sarah, 
would you like to add something? No, no, no. I, except to say that yes, this is an, a wonderfully easy read, mm -hmm. and I was so happy with that. <laughs> uh, but yes, academic, it's reference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, is there any question on that? Yeah. So the first question is from Darren Lewis, who said, what is the survival kit for people of color in the workplace? Will change come from race relation committees and trade unions? Or how does the UK black worker revolutionize? Um, the second question is anonymous. Um, for a subject which is so important, how have you managed to be able to open the doors to talk about your book? in institutions where doors are normally closed to us? Survival kit. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, as somebody who works in one of the whitest professions, well, they're kind of all white, to be honest, when you get to like, the professional, but certainly academia is very, very white, right? Um, part of this does come from my, like, how do you protect yourself, right? So actually, in the book, I do tell, and I might get fired. I'm trying to get fired, and they won't fire me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I read the audiobook, honestly, I was like, well, I cost the university way too many times. They really don't like it when you do that. But I had, a, I had a really bad experience of racism at work. And, you know, I'll just tell you the experience, whatever. It's a rookie, whatever. Yeah, this can be my, I get fired. Please, someone watch it at BC. So, um, <laughs> remember Amy, Amy Cooper? Um, Amy Cooper, the person who was, uh, there's a black guy in New York, and he's walking his dog, and he asks her to put a dog on a leash. Yeah. And she and she she starts she calls up the police. She's like making this, and he films it. Yeah, a similar thing happened to me. I'm in a meeting, me and a me and a black colleague, and our manager. I think I called her a liar because she was lying, and she got really upset about it and said, uh, "Don't be aggressive." And I was like, "Aggressive? You can't. Don't use racist language." Was my response to her. Her response to that was to basically she started. She jumped out of her seat and she ran out of the room crying as I detected. Right. So I'm like, "Wow, this is." Strange. We actually complained about this at work. Mm -hmm. I've got a witness, so I'm sure I've got a witness, it'd be fine, right? Oh, no, no, it really wasn't fine. So I, had to, I went off work sick, I got really stressed about it, went back and forth, with da 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 da. And I told my mum this, and she looked at me and she said, That's what being black is. And kind of walked up. And I was like, Oh, thanks, mum. <laughs> <laughs> but, but she taught me a lesson, right? Cause like, because I'm a professor, and I, I'm expecting like a rational response. But it don't exist. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get even if you have evidence to it. It doesn't matter. You're not going to get treated fairly. And so that's really helped me personally because I can now step back and go. I, I can't expect nothing from this place. And it's and it's and it's kind of sounds a bit negative, but that's the truth, right? It's a reality. And once you do that, you'll feel better. I promise you. This is my number one survival tip. Do not expect to be treated fairly because your expectation you'll be treated fairly will make you feel worse when you are not. Right? And that's a sad truth, but it's also the truth. Um, and so I'm not saying take racism at work, and I'm not saying that at all, but you have to understand the mechanisms and the way these processes, processes work. So that's why actually when you see it for a psychosis, it does make you feel better because it's not you, right? And this again, part of the, the metaphor of psychosis is we are more likely to suffer serious mental health issues as black people. So that's seven times more likely to be sectioned. Um, it's about seven times, seven, between seven and 14 times more likely to, be, to have a psychotic diagnosis, psychotic illness. And I would argue that the reason for this is because we have to deal with, these, with, a, with a deluded world. The world is crazy, not us. As Linton Quasi Johnson says, England will mad you. And that's what it means. Like, if you, if you, it will actually mad you. It's what it does. Um, I was speaking to Nels Abbey today, who works for The Guardian. He's on the podcast next week. And um, he, was, he was saying when he worked at the BBC, he actually had like, high blood pressure. He had to go to hospital and get checked out because he couldn't. He's like, what's going on? Palpitations. And, 
that's what it does to you, right? So we, as a survivor, we have to step back and, um, and, and, and see it for what it is. And then also, you have to have one internal networks. So one of the reasons I go and do these Deloitte talks is to talk to the black people. There's a few, not, not that many, but there's a few black people there and say, well, look, you need to have internal mechanisms, internal staff groups, those are really important, but also external. I promise you, had I not had external stuff, Black Studies Association, all this stuff around doing different things, I, I would have I would have burned out a long time ago. You have to have that, that external stuff, right? It has to be there, otherwise you're not gonna survive, honestly. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd say to anybody in the workplace. It's hard, but it's, it's kind of necessary. It's necessary to the point where hopefully it won't be necessary, we can, make, we can make our own stuff in the future, but at this point, it's necessary. Protect yourself, internal mechanisms, external, external support groups. Lack of support, like I'm actually literally telling you, you have to have support groups to survive. It's terrible, isn't it? But this is one of the things where I can't tell you there's any positives. It's just you have to, you do have to actually navigate it and negotiate it and survive it. Survive is the correct word for being in these places. They're hostile environments, right? But once you see the hostile environments, that helps you do it, I think. Uh, what was the second, second question was about? Um, did you, did opening you doors. Yeah, did you uh, want to say something? Uh, no, 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 you hit that. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, survival. I mean, uh, yeah, the stories at LSE. Um, uh, yeah, it's, you need those support networks. If, I mean, for me, I, I have the instinct to always think I'm, and that's actually your, your book was, I think that was one of the things I enjoyed about your book. Once again, enjoy is an interesting word because it squarely lets you know you're not the problem because I'm constantly finding myself to having to go back to my support networks going, this happened. Am I mad? Have I missed the boat on this? Like, did I? And them having to go, no, you know, you know what you saw. You know that was racist. You know it's not you. And just that, just hearing that, being reminded, being like, that's right, it's not me. Like, cause that without that, I, I, <laughs> you would, you I don't know where I'd be. Yeah. 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 So yeah, definitely that is one hundred percent necessary. Uh, opening doors, and this is so. This is one of the um, the benefits of being a professor. A professor does open doors. If I was a professor, I ain't no one talking about. I ain't getting invited to LSE to do a talk. Not ridiculous. Like you do, you do. It does open open doors. Uh, the question is, what do you do with it? I mean, I do have a whole critique elsewhere about you know black academics and what's our role and do we. Do we use that corrective? And this is going to sound negative, but I promise it's not. I promise it's positive. The, um, I, 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 the metaphor I use now is professor is like uh, plantation preacher, slave preacher. That's what professor's like. I guess it's a negative, but it's going to get there. You're going to follow me. Stay with me. I promise. Um, and if you think, what's the point of a slave preacher is to keep the slave passive, right? It's to teach this terrible version of religion. But also, where many of the slave uh, rebellions come from, preachers. It's Nat Turner, it's um, I'm trying to, Sam Sharp. Because slave preacher had pr a privilege, slave preacher could go around different plantations and talk to people, could open those doors, could have congregate in more than four people. Um, slave preacher could read and read the Bible and had a different mission. So you have these positions of privilege which do open doors. Unfortunately, most of us tend to just shut the doors or keep the doors closed or you know, just perform like the slave preacher. But we are in a position where we can do things differently. So that, this is an example of it, opening doors, having these kind of conversations that wouldn't be had otherwise, right? Um, and so we have to, and that's again why, why I try to use those to make these psychoses of whiteness. Like to put, we have, when we, ha we have to make a different conversation. Don't put me coming here talking nice about racial equality and diversity, no. Let's have a different conversation. And actually part of the reason I wrote, not actually, not, one of the benefits of writing the book was when I wrote for The Guardian, they'd always take out 
psychosis of whiteness when I put it in things. So you can't say psychosis too much, it's too much. But now I wrote a book in it, so now they, so they, they, they didn't offend, and now it's become a thing. So yeah, let's say you can change the nature of the debate, use the, use the privileges that you, that you have. Well, um, thanks, Kehendi. Thanks, Sarah. Um, unfortunately, the event is coming to its end, but thank you very much for your comments and questions. It's been a great, a great pleasure, such a pleasure to have um, the opportunity for both me and I believe for all of you to listen to Kehende and Sarah. Thank you um, to our speakers for taking part. Um, we are most grateful you could find time in your busy schedule um, to be with us and make it happen. Thank you also to our BSR interpreters because it's very important. And lastly, thank you to all who um, joined us today. Um, just a reminder, you are now able to purchase copies of Kehendi's book outside the lecture theatre and have your copy signed as well. Have a wonderful evening and please, some applause for our great speaker. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.